You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Thank you, Pastor Drew. Thank you. And look at you guys. It all came out on a Sunday night. Awesome. And I do appreciate that offering. The Lord led me back in 2019 to stop taking a salary from the national office so that I could have the freedom to go outside of of some of the the strictures that that I have working for just the Assemblies of God. And so this has opened new doors for me to be able to travel uh, without any restrictions at all. And God's people have have been faithful. You know, when you stop taking a salary in 2019 and then you get hit with a pandemic, that that was wow, yeah. But God has been so faithful, as he always is. Okay, Namal, go ahead and give us, uh, let's just jump right in, because we're looking at, at time here. We want to have plenty of time for, for uh, time around the altar and, and praying into our lives what we learn. Because as we said this morning, we don't want to just receive information. Information is good, but we can just be informed idiots. And um, you may have known people who were very knowledgeable, but they were still jerks. And we want to be Christ-like. And so we want to take the knowledge that we receive and then ask the Lord to work it through us. And so tonight, what I'd like to do with you is take you back uh, to a um, hundred more than years ago. Um, so many people in, in, in the Pentecostal movement um, skip over some of the earlier history. And, and there is, for those of you who have some more familiarity with Pentecostal history, we sometimes teach it as though it just dropped out of heaven in 1901, just boom, nobody was expecting anything. And oh my goodness, everybody was speaking in tongues and dancing and singing wildly. And nothing could be further from the truth. Um, and so we're going to take a look at some of these folks. And so, Namal, you're going to keep me moving, all right? Me and you, we're a team tonight because we're going to have to run through this because I wrote this for a seminary class and, that, and I had two hours. So, <laughs> so we're going to keep moving. So take us. So um, go ahead to the next one because I don't know where I'm going until you tell me. All right. Now, in the Pentecostal movement, there are some words that we throw around, and some of you may have heard them. I think I I even heard a couple of them today. Uh, Words like, we need a revival. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Or, oh, we need a reformation of, of what God wants to do. We need a restoration of the power of God. We need a new renaissance of, of the power that they had there. We need a revitalization. You heard those words? Now, I want you to go back to English class and look at that list of words. What do they all have in common? Are, yes. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> This is true, but there's, there's a certain part, part of a speech. Oh, yes, we have a prefix, score. That's why you got the Iowa State on your shirt, yeah. <laughs> Smart Iowa State folks. It has a prefix. Now, when we see the prefix, R-E, in front of a word, what does it indicate to us? Going, going back to something. So we have a prefix, and then we have a root word, right? And then we get a suffix, which in this case is going to tell us, you know, what part of speech it is. Is it a noun or adjective, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when we see these words, the, the root words within them, revival, the Latin 
to live. So a revival is, is a concept of something that is dead and then comes back to life. It is revived, right? So a reformation, we're going to re, and this is English, so it's easy, form. Something has become misshapen, and so it needs to be reformed, right? And then a, a renaissance, natal, again, the, the Latin, a rebirth, and then revitalization. Again, we go back to that, the idea of living again, restoring, making new. Each one of these words that we just throw out so casually carry with them an understanding of a return to something that has been misaligned, misdirected, or lost. See, here is a danger for us sometimes in our movement. We want to talk about that, that the Pentecostal movement was something new within the church. They certainly did not understand it that way. The early Pentecostals looked at what they were experiencing as not something new, but something old that had been lost and needed to be found. You know, sometimes, and we need to be careful with this, I've, I've heard some verses in the scripture misused in this way, because we'll, we'll hear somebody say, oh, God is doing a new thing. And that, and that is scriptural, you know, behold, I am doing a new thing. But we need to understand in the context when God speaks that way, what he is doing is I am renewing something. God hasn't had like plan A and then, oh, that didn't work. Let's do plan B. He's not making something brand new. He is renewing the plan that he has had all along from the beginning, the foundation of the world. And we need to be careful. Anytime somebody comes to you with something brand new that's never been heard before, nobody has ever read the Bible and discovered this before. Um, there might be a reason nobody has ever discovered that in the Bible before. So we need to be very careful with some of these things. And so this idea of a return. So when Pentecostals talk about um, the old time religion or something like that, they're not talking about the 1950s. Okay? They're referring back to the book of Acts, what the church experienced and needing a renewal of what God has provided from the beginning. So we throw out these words like revival. Oh, we need a revival. Well, how does that happen? This is a fair question. I mean, if we're gonna be talking about we need this, we need to figure out how that happens. So if we take a look at some revivals that have happened, and I will tell you tonight, we're gonna to be very Americentric in focusing within the United States. That does not mean in any way, shape, or form that God has only worked in the United States of America. We are a very small part of the large work that God has done throughout history. But this is our history, and this is where we happen to be, so this is where we're going. Now, there was a revival within the United States back in the 1700s, and it's been called the First Great Awakening. Now, they didn't call it that because they wouldn't have known it was the first of anything. Uh, they just knew God was doing something. And one of the leaders in that revival, he was the, a pastor. There was an evangelist that had come over, uh, a couple evangelists, and all kinds of fun things happening, but we don't have time, so don't let me get started. But Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts, and things began happening in his church there in Northampton. Now, Jonathan Edwards was a good Calvinist. And as a good Calvinist,
Calvinist, he followed the teachings of the Institute of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. And part of that understanding then is anything that happens, happens because of the sovereign will of God. So when Edwards is seeing all of this stuff happening in his church and people are, are beginning to, and he's preaching and people start crying out for mercy from God and, and, and saying they want to be saved and giving testimony of, of incredible things happening in their lives and, and people began coming from all over the area to these meetings with himself and the evangelist George Whitfield. And Jonathan Edwards writes a book because people are criticizing what's happening. And so he writes a book explaining the, the, what, what is going on. And the title of his book on revival is this, The Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. Now that is an excellent Calvinist title because the work of God that was happening was a surprise. He did nothing to bring it. He couldn't have done anything to stop it. God just decided to surprise them in his sovereignty, in his will, in his time. He decreed that a work of reviving his church was due. Okay? Now, let's move on 100 or so years later. Go ahead, Nama. To another revival and another revivalist. This is called the Second Great Awakening, and one of the evangelists of that revival was a man by the name of Charles Grandison Finney. Now, Finney was also a Calvinist, but he was not a very good one. And Finney also wrote a book on revival, and I want you to catch the difference in the title that he uses. Edwards wrote about the surprising work of God. Finney's book is called Lectures on revival. Now, when you get a lecture on something, what, what does that intimate to you? We're learning somebody's coming and they're going to stand behind a lectern and they're going to tell us how to do something. So in Finney's book, he gives all kinds of ideas of ways that you can bring about a revival. He talks about having protracted meetings, night after night after night of coming together. He talks about having a special place in the front of the church where people who need something from God can come forward and pray. He talks about all of these plans that you can do when you go into a town. And he says this, he says, a revival is the result of the right use of the appropriate means of grace. Now that's a lousy Calvinist because what Finney is saying, as opposed to Edwards who said, revival comes when God decrees it. There's nothing you can do to bring it. There's nothing you can do to stop it. Finney said, oh, here's a whole list of things that we could do for God's people to seek after him, to seek after a move of God, and then God will respond to their cry. Now, this is two very different understandings of how revival comes. So who is right? Is it a sovereign move of God in his time? He simply says, I am going to blow a fresh wind across my people. Or is it a response to God's people seeking after him? Y'all don't look sure. So how many of you would say it's an Edwards thing? How many of you would say it's a Finney thing? 
How many of you would say, I, I don't know, I'll, I'll take both? Now, in this instance, it wasn't a trick question. In this instance, it's a both and. Have you ever been in a service where, you know, Scott, it was just a regular service you'd planned and practiced and got up to lead worship and not expecting anything new and all of a sudden the wind of the Spirit blows across the place and everybody leaves knowing I have been in the presence of God and you did nothing different than you ever did otherwise. And how many of you have been in moments where you came in feeling nothing, but as you sought the Lord, as you knelt down, as you cried out to him, then, then he began to soften you, and in response to your cry, he answered. Yeah, we've experienced both. And so we need to keep this in mind as we look at revival history and asking God for a renewing of his church in our day. Now, let's take a look, go ahead, Ma, at this time in American history that, that we're looking at from 1850 to roughly 1900. You know, we talk about that we're in a, a difficult time in America today, in 2024, and we're just getting this puppy started. And we hear sometimes people say, we are divided like never before in this nation. Could I submit to you that we are not yet at the point where the government is arming its citizens and paying them a salary and intentionally planning on putting them in strategic battle against their fellow Americans in the farms and backyards of the nation. And that's what these people knew. Are we divided today? Yes, but we are not at the place that this nation was in this period of time. A country at war with itself. And that will mess some things up. Now, in the Civil War, we lost about 2% of the population at that time, which today would be the equivalent of about 6 million Americans dying in a very short time. Now, you remember when we hit the, the million mark with, with COVID-19, the pandemic, and it was big news. You know, this affects, this affects the economy, it affects workers. Of course, in our situation, it was older people more that were dying. In this situation, it was young men farmers, the people who were running the, the backbone of the economy and the families of the nation. Hugely impactful, even more were lost to disease because this is what war does. An entire way of living was gone with the wind. Now, for the church, this really set up some ways of trying to understand what God was doing. They had come out of, just coming out of a great revival in the very areas where this war was going to be fought. Now, in America, the understanding for much of the church prior to this period had been that um, we were an experiment, a city set on a hill. Many of them believe that was Winthorpe's great saying of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and all of that. And so they, they had this understanding that things are going to just get better and better and better and better as we grow and expand. And we had, had all of these wonderful expansions coming. 
and, <clears throat> and many of them believed that they were going to get better and better and better until they had just done such a good job with this nation that Jesus would then return to reign over this nation that they had built up. The Civil War destroyed that idea that we've got it, we're getting better and better. And we realized we're not getting better and better. And it shook the understanding of many people. Another thing that's going on is westward expansion. Thomas Jefferson did a little thing back in 1803 when he wrote a little check to France and said, hey, I'll take the Louisiana Territory. And so he expanded the territory of the United States just exponentially, sent Lewis and Clark out. They all had a good time and did their whole thing. And so with this now, we've got Americans moving from what has been a, a more urban kind of setting in the east. We're now spreading across to the west and all of this land is opening up, agrarian um, understanding of a way of life. And so they're moving across and spreading out. People are living far from each other. And then, get this, politically, you think we're messed up politically today, and we are. But I want you to take a look at this. 15 presidents in 50 years. Now, in my, the first 50 years of my life, to help you get, get a, a view of that, we only had nine. Now you know that every time we change a president, things change in the country. It's kind of like when you stir Kool-Aid, you know, when you're going one way and you have to stop, start stirring the other way, everything gets messed up in the transition. 15 transitions, but I want you to look at these transitions. We had one that died suddenly in office, three assassinations in 50 years. Three, Lincoln, Garfield, and McKinley. Now that will mess with things. How many of you remember 1965? And for those who were alive in 65, um, that's a date, November, that you will never forget. Changed our nation. Can you imagine three assassinations? And then we had our first impeachment. Now we've lived through three impeachments now in the 90s and then two recently. That messes with the feeling of the nation, does it not? There's an instability that comes from this kinds of things. All of these changes, a war and changes, and nobody seems to agree with anybody else. Everybody is, is moving out here. We had the great Chicago fire in 1871 that messed up stuff. And then we get an increase in population that changes the face of the nation with the great migration that is coming from not Northern Europe and the British Isles, but from Eastern Europe and places that were different than we were. We being the predominant Eastern, understand? so these people are coming over, they are bringing their own language, Italian, and all of this other stuff. They're bringing their own language, they're bringing their own customs, they're bringing their own religion. And all of a sudden, we've got an influx of Catholics that we had not had before. And this changed the, the dynamic, the, the makeup 
of the American society in a great way, in such a great way that in the beginning of the 20th century, laws were passed to limit how many people and from what places could come into the United States. So this is shaking things up. Does any of this sound familiar to you? And we've got an explosion in transportation. Up until this point, you were born and probably lived going no more than 20, 30 miles from where you were born. But then we got this wonderful transatlantic railroad and it's gonna take us from New York all the way out to California and the West Coast. People are traveling, they're experiencing new things. Technology just explodes. We get dynamite. We've got brand new ways, yeah, to blow up things to make a train to get it through the hill, but we also got new ways to kill each other. And so we get dynamite, we get the telephone, and this increase in communication that is now all of a sudden, we can call people who are across the country. We've even got a telegraph. We can send a message across the ocean, and there were many that taught there would be no more wars because communication now is, is in such a way that there'll be less misunderstandings between nations because we can communicate better. So we've got communication, we get the light bulb. Oh, what a change that brought. I blame Edison for our stress. I really do. Before the light bulb, when it got dark, we went to bed, and when it got light, we got up. A normal way to live. The light bulb made us a 24-7 society. And the telephone meant that we had to be available all of that 24-7. There was a used to, you could just not answer your phone and nobody thought a thing of it. Now they get mad at you. Radio, moving pictures. So we're, see, we're getting messages and thoughts coming from other places that we'd never gotten before with the advent of radio. And then we can start going in, into to moving pictures and seeing influences. The change in technology in these 50 years was astronomical. Does this sound familiar? Absolutely. And then we've got a whole new understanding of who we are. When Darwin releases his extremely influential origin of the species. And for the first time, really, mankind has some options in our identity. Because before this, I mean, if you just study history, most every culture had a creation story. But now we've got an option of an understanding of ourselves that comes into being separate from a creator. And so our understanding of who we are and where we come from and our intrinsic value has now been changed. And we've got options for that. And we're in a time like this today where our identity is consistently being challenged. Who we thought we were may not be who we really are. And there's questions about all of this. And along with that, we have the rise of Protestant liberalism and the social gospel, which brings in some questions about how the church is supposed to operate. Is the church's responsibility to change the culture by passing laws and by achieving power and, and um, political clout and starting a lot of um, outreaches, or is it by um, staying in our churches and preaching and trying to convert people one by one and change the culture from that direction? 
Is this a discussion we're still having? Yes, it is. This was a difficult and unique time. And these people in the church coming off of the winds of a revival in the beginning of the, of the eight, excuse me, of the 19th century, these people found themselves in a culture for which they knew they were not qualified. So go ahead. So there, there are three, and I've got to keep moving, Lord. It's wrong to curse the clock. There are, are three streams that start to converge into a river within, within the church of, of, of America. One is this understanding of premillennialism. Before this, that understanding was that the country is going to get better and better as Christians um, build this and do that. It's going to get better and better and better. And then uh, there may be a return of Christ, maybe, or it may already be here. In the Catholic Church, you know, the understanding is that Christ is already ruling in the millennial kingdom through the, the Roman Catholic, through the Catholic Church. But this new understanding was that things might actually be going to get worse and worse. And then Christ will return and he will fix things. And there will be a literal return of Christ and then things will get better in a millennial reign. Combine that with the understanding, if Christ is coming back to establish a millennial reign on earth, he will restore to the church what it had at the beginning when he established it. So there began to be a lot of preaching on the understanding that God is going to restore the church. It needs something more than it has. Now, if you start believing that Jesus is going to come and establish a kingdom and he's going to restore to the church the power it had, you start asking, what kind of people is he looking for? And this is what becomes known as the holiness movement or sometimes the deeper life movement. And so then there becomes these questions of what kind of people ought we to be? And there's this desire to return to a simplicity within the church. Go ahead, Namal. Ah, that's a good one. Skip it. Um, so the understanding among many of these people within churches, primarily the Methodist church and the Baptist church. That last slide would explain that, but we're not going to do that. The Second Great Awakening gave great growth to two, two churches, the Methodist and the Baptist. During this moment, at the end of the 1800s, these churches have gained a prominence in the United States that surpassed way before where they had been before the Civil War. And within the Methodist Church, there was a rediscovery of some teachings of their founder, John Wesley, on Christian perfectionism. And this goes with the holiness movement. And Wesley taught that there was an experience with God that happened after salvation, the sanctifying work of God. So when you get saved, you're justified, you're made right with God, just as if I'd never sinned, justified. But Wesley taught that there was a second act of God after salvation called sanctification. And Wesley's understanding was that there would come a moment in your life when you have consecrated all to God and he will then sanctify you with holiness and then you have received power over sin. So at justification, at salvation, we receive 
um, freedom from the penalty of sin, and in sanctification, we receive freedom from the power of sin. You with me? And so these people that begin believing this as, as they start talking to their churches and their pastors, and they find that, that a lot of their ideas are not welcome within their church, and so they start meeting outside of their church. Matter of fact, go to the next slide real quick. And we get what these, these some of these meetings, you see them in, in brush arbors, where they would meet outside of churches, they would build campgrounds and have camp meetings, and they'd come together, Presbyterians, Methodists, and Baptists primarily. And they would come together for the purpose of seeking more of God and finding the power to have freedom from sin and to, to be able to impact the culture around them. Go back to the, the, that other slide, Namal. Now with this idea of there's more after salvation comes a resurgence of interest in a term that they read in the New Testament called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And as they would read this within the, the New Testament, they started asking each other, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? How would we know? that we have been. And so they begin, as they're coming together in these camp meeting times, they begin to sing about the desires of their heart. And so I am a firm believer that the music of a church will shape its theology and its theology will shape its music. If you wanna understand a church, listen to the songs they sing. Now this holiness movement, these Methodists, Baptists, and Presbyterians started coming together and singing out the desires of their heart. And these are songs with words that, that you, would, you do not find in hymnody up until this point. Matter of fact, C.I. Schofield, some of you have heard of him, by no means a Pentecostal. But with, with this resurgence of interest, he said, and I've not found any reason to doubt him, there was more written about the Holy Spirit in this 50-year period than there had been in the previous 1900 years of church history. This resurgence of interest in this idea of sanctification, holiness, and the power of the Spirit. Here's some of the songs. Here's one written by a, a great Salvation Army, so part of the holiness movement. Listen to the words that they would get together and sing. Thou Christ of burning, cleansing flame, send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. Thy blood-bought gift today we claim. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. Look down and see this waiting host. And listen to this line. Give us the promised Holy Ghost. We want another Pentecost. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. And they would gather in these brush arbors and sing these songs that nobody else was singing, looking for a resurgence, a re-understanding, a reanimation of the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, listen to this one written by a Presbyterian. Lord, as of old at Pentecost, thou didst thy power display with burning, cleansing, with cleansing, purifying flame, descend on us today and listen to this course. Lord, send the old time power, the Pentecostal powers. It's like a good Presbyterian song. 
the floodgates of blessing on us pour open wide lord send the old time power the pentecostal power that sinners be converted and thy name glorified can you hear him in these little meetings asking god for a re-understanding of what the that is now listen to this methodist same guy that wrote, by the way, another song that we still remember, The Old Rugged Cross, you know, that one, on a hill far away, wrote this one. In the book of God so precious, we are told of Pentecost, how the blessed Lord's disciples tarried for the Holy Ghost. Pentecostal fire fell on them, burning up their sin and dross, filling them with power for service, making them a mighty Host, good Methodist theology. Pentecost can be repeated. For the Lord is just the same yesterday, today, forever. Glory to his precious name. Saints of God can be victorious over sin and death and hell, have a full and free salvation and the blessed story tale. And then they would sing the chorus. Pentecostal fire is falling. Praise the Lord, it fell on me. Pentecostal fire is falling. Brother, let it fall on thee. Isn't that a great Methodist song? Yeah, we thought these were our songs. We stole them from the Methodists and the Baptists and the Presbyterians. Waiting on the Lord for the promise given. Waiting on the Lord to send from heaven. Waiting on the Lord by faith receiving. Waiting in the upper room. And then the course. The Pentecostal power. The Pentecostal power gives victory over sin and purity within. The Pentecostal power, the Pentecostal power, the power they had at Pentecost. And there is a resurgence of longing to experience the power of God through the Holy Spirit. Keep going, Nama. And, and so along with this, as they are seeking after a, a resurgence of the power of God within their own lives to face the needs around them, they start getting the idea, we need to be getting other people ready. If Jesus is actually returning and he's restoring to the church the power that the original church had, then we've got to tell others. And this is when we see the beginnings of the great American missionary movement. With 1865, J. Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission. 1887, Christian Missionary Alliance, A.B. Simpson. Go ahead. And along with this, this, we need a restoration of the power they had at Pentecost. Along with this, and, and it, it was also a reaction to some things happening within the nation. As they were reading the power of the early church and the life of Christ, they noticed that he had an interest in the physical well-being of people with healing. Now, we have to remember, in the Civil War, a lot of people died, and one particular profession that was decimated because they were sent to the front lines was the medical profession. We lost a lot of doctors and nurses in the Civil War. Because of that, there, there was a lack of good medical care, and so arose the quack movement. 
It wasn't called the quack movement, but there was a lot of that. With it, where it was as dangerous to go to the doctor sometimes as it was to stay home. And so this is where we see the beginning of the health movement. We've got Mr. Kellogg up north making his magic cornflakes, uh, which was a health food, which probably was until Tony Tiger poured sugar all over him, and now they give us diabetes. Mr. Graham makes his, his cracker. That, these are health foods that are coming out. And during this time then, these holiness people began to grab onto this idea that there was or gifts of the spirit that were listed in this scripture. And perhaps if the Lord was restoring the power to his church, perhaps they could pray and ask God for a release of those gifts. And so one of the things they did, A.J. Gordon, uh, A.B. Simpson, Mariah Woodworth, Edder, they start building homes called faith healing homes. And they would invite the sick to come and stay there with them at no cost. And they would provide healthy food and they would pray asking God to heal them. Next slide. Let's keep moving. I have something good to say there, but we're not going to say it. There's a few lessons that we learn from these people that we're going to run through, but some of them we need. We are living in similar times to these people. And there are some things that we can learn from the holiness people. One is an understanding, and the Civil War taught this really good. This world is not our home, nor is it our hope. This understanding that they could build some kind of a nation that would, would be this, this um, city set on a hill and it would show the whole world and they found out that sin was a part of the human condition and they could not put their hopes in a political system. And we need to hear this today. The hope of the, of the nation and of the church has very little to do with who is in the White House. In 2016, I saw a post from an Assemblies of God minister with this statement that said, if Hillary Clinton is elected president, it will be the end of Christianity in our nation. Can I tell you that Christianity outlived Nero, it outlived Caligula, it outlived Stalin, it outlived Pol Pot, it outlived Ceausescu, it will outlive Hillary, Biden, or Trump. This place, this world, this system is not where we put our hope. It will fail you. Kingdom, power, and glory belong to Jesus alone. Another thing that we need to learn is a willingness to work with others outside of our insular community. The Pentecostal movement was made up of a conglomerate of holiness people, uh, a lot of them Christian Missionary Alliance, Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, who had been coming together and working together for a move of God. And we need to understand that there are people in the body of Christ who don't look like us, don't sound like us, don't worship like us, but if our desire is for the heart of God, then we need to learn how to work together. Another thing that we can learn from these people is an openness to a more egalitarian ministry. 
One of the things that you saw in these camp meetings was the use of it didn't matter your age, your gender, your social status, whether you were slave or free, black or white, male or female, young or old, educated or uneducated. If God had given you a word, we wanted to hear it. And we need to understand that people may look different from us. And yet, if God has created us all in his image, he has a work for us all to do. And we can listen to people outside of just a certain, yeah. <laughs> Number four, and this is huge for us today. Evaluation of character over charisma. The church has been in a place where we have allowed ourselves to be wowed and wooed by celebrity status and fame and charisma and ability. And we have looked to that and overlooked the character of the person. We need to remember before we were Pentecostal people, we were called holiness people. And there were standards for our leaders. We have elevated men and women to the pulpit in the churches of this nation who had no business being there. And their immorality and their amorality has made us a laughing stock to much of the rest of the world. They were good preachers. They could build a, a church. They could bring in a crowd. But their character was not reflective of the fruit of the Spirit. And we have to get past the age of the celebrity pastor and look for evaluation of the character that is molded in Christ-likeness within the inner man. All right, I think there's one more. A longing for the restoration of the power of the early church for the purpose of the glory of God. Part of the problem today is we've learned how to do it without the Holy Spirit. If he shows up, that's great. But if he doesn't, we know how to manage things. But if we needed the Holy Spirit to get this church going, how much more do we need him to keep it going? And it takes for us because we've been eating on so much of the junk and the fluff and the cotton candy of the world that we have not given ourselves the time to get hungry and a longing for the power of God because just like these people in the 1800s we are facing a situation in our culture for which we are inadequate And we can't come up with the programs, Pastor. When I pastored, I loved annual business meetings, and that's when we talk about our programs and our ideas. I, I loved them. I'm just, I'm a geek that way. But you know what? In the early days of Pentecost, we didn't have any programs. We had no influence. We had no money. We had no buildings. We had nothing. So on the masthead of our little newsletter, we put a line that was the motto of the Assemblies of God, and it said this, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
Our trouble is today we have the might and the power. We have the influence. We have the programs. We have the buildings. We have all of this stuff. But God did then with so little. And today we have so much. And perhaps he needs to strip us of the so much so that our dependence becomes back on him. The Holiness Movement, one of the songs that came out of there that is one of my favorites, says this. I am thine, O Lord. I have heard thy voice. And it told of love to me. But I long to rise in the arms of faith and be closer drawn to thee. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Now we're going to take a few moments the kids are coming. I love that y'all bring the kids in. Go ahead, Scott. I love that y'all bring the kids in. And we're going to take a moment. Go ahead. You know what? No, for just a minute, could you just put those, those five things back up there? And as we take some time, let's ask the Lord to show us where he wants to move in our life. And then in our corporate life. And then what is his purpose for us in this place, in this time, in this moment? God has something for us. Would you stand? And I don't know how you do this, so if I do it wrong, Pastor, you just come and do it better, okay? And would you just begin to spread out all over this building. There's place up here, there's place in the back, in the aisles, and if somebody's in your way, just say, uh, excuse me, and keep moving. I want us to take a few moments. And, and yeah, it's good for us to sing, but we need to call out on God. We don't need somebody else to do our praying for us. We need to touch God. And so let's just take a moment. I'm going to start us off in prayer. And then I want you guys to just take it from there. Are you ready? Are you ready? Oh, Heavenly Father, in this moment, as we are in this place and in this time, God, we begin to cry out to you. We are desperate. Father, we're so desperate that we can't even see our desperation. Lord, so many times I wonder if you don't look at us like that church that you loved so much in first century Asia Minor. And you said to them, you think that you are rich, but you are poor. You think that you are well-dressed, but you are naked. You think that you are well and healthy, but you are blind and wretched and miserable. But I stand at your door and I knock. Oh God, knock at our door. And Lord, may we open willingly and quickly the door of our heart, of our mind, of our understanding to you. Oh God, would you call to us again? 
This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.